Budget day in this province. Thank you so much for being on the mighty Alan Carter radio program, being with us. And we have a big show ahead with a lot of topics. Uh, coming up very shortly, we're going to talk to a liberal and an NDP MPP talking about what they fear or worry may be in Doug Ford's first provincial budget. Just to give you an outline of the day today and what is happening right now as we speak, journalists are in a room in a building right next to Queen's Park, just to the east of Queen's Park, and they are going over the document, and all of their phones have been taken away. They can't communicate with the outside world. And that continues until about 4.15, between 4 and 4.15 usually, when the finance minister, Vic Fideli, stands up in the House, in the legislature at Queen's Park. And then once he begins to actually deliver the budget, that's when all of a sudden they let the journalists out of the room and they lift the embargo and suddenly the wire copies and Twitter and everything goes just completely nuts as all the details just completely flood out right away. So the the theme of today's show is... Budget cuts. Budget cuts. How many budget cuts will there be? Will there be cuts? The Ford government is fond of saying... It's going to have efficiencies. It's going to find efficiencies, not cuts. Well, what is going to be in this budget, and how will the opposition, how will they react to that? John Vetsoff is the NDP deputy leader, and he joins me on the line. Uh, Michael Cotto is going to be joining us in a couple of moments, but uh, I believe John is with us. We have Michael. So we have we have the we have a liberal, but we don't have an NDP. No dipper. Uh, here, I want to play the introduction that I have for Michael Cotto, who, of course, is a former uh, minister under Kathleen Wynne. You are addicted to spending like the proverbial drunken sailor. So are you expecting... Uh, that's unfair, Michael. I apologize. Uh, but uh, are you expecting a lot uh, of talk about you know righting the ship after all the damage that you and your party did to this province? Well, it's it's part of their narrative, right? So they've created a um, uh, a, a storyline that says the Liberals have uh, overspent, and uh, they're here to make the tough decisions, and that every single person is going to have to uh, sacrifice a bit in order to get us to where we need to be. But at the same time, they're running a deficit that's larger than the previous uh, Liberal deficit. They're, I think the projected deficit that I've heard so far is about thirteen point five uh, billion, and at the same time, it's being uh, it's being done. Those cuts are being done at the expense of children and young people and families in Ontario. The budget uh, deficit is, as you say, $13.5 billion. However, that is somewhat under question. Uh, the, the financial accountability officer said that it was actually closer to $12 billion. And then there's this whole talk about accounting practices. Uh, your government did not include, or rather did include, pension assets. The uh, Ford government said, no, no, we're going to side with the auditor on this and, and take that out. Is that something to watch today? Do you think they're going to flip-flop on that whole accounting procedure thing? So I think they've come into government, they've realized that the cuts that they were actually anticipating that they could actually do, Um, they can't get away with, like, for example, with the uh, autism file. There was a a blatant uh, clawback of uh, $100 million that they attempted to do. Uh, Parents and families and uh, and, uh, people just pushed back, and they're going to get a lot of that happening. So it's not as easy as they think it was to just walk in and and make those cuts because people rely on those services. Uh, They built a narrative uh, that the Liberals overspent. You know that um, uh, two years ago we balanced the budget in Ontario. 
Um, last year, our uh, and then our you budget, open then you open the taps like you know like well, nobody's opened, business in an attempt in an attempt to win re-election, but and that didn't work out well, for you. But well, I, I, and, and 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 people would people can dispute that, but you know we're talking about uh, that was projected around six point five billion dollars today. It's a thirteen point five billion dollar deficit, and they've made massive cuts: four percent cut to education, five percent cut to universities. Well, we're going to see we're going to see those services. details coming up, uh, Michael. I want to bring in uh, John Vantoff, who is now with us, uh, the NDP deputy leader. Uh, both of these gentlemen not in the lockup. Uh, the uh, leaders are all in the lockup right now, which is why we can't talk to Andrea Horvath. She's not available. John, how are you? Good, good. How are you all? Uh, I'm good, thanks. I want to talk about a couple of things that we have. Uh, that we do know will be in the budget. The Canadian press reporting that the free dental care for low-income seniors will be contained in this budget. CBC Radio reporting that there will be a child care rebate that was promised during the election. That's going to allow families to get back up to 75% to a maximum of $6,500 on annual child care costs of $9,000. Those are some things that you're going to say, hey, you're going to applaud, you're going to extend up, and you say, you got that right, Vic. Is that is that what's going to happen? Well, there's always there's always the devils in the details. So for the dental care for seniors, to the extent that it's provided, it's good, but there's a very low income threshold. So a lot of people, they're not going to say, hey, we're providing free dental care to seniors. They're not going to talk about the very low income threshold, right? So it's all about messaging and also regarding the, the tax rebates for child care, um, one of the big issues in this province is not just the cost of childcare, but the availability of childcare. So a tax rebate doesn't create one extra childcare space. The government has said, and uh, the premier saying yesterday, that there will be a thoughtful path to balance. And obviously, a path to balance is something that is important to that party. And when you see what's happening in the federal scene with no clear path to balance, how? much are you looking to see how they ratchet down spending over the next couple of years? Michael, I'll start with you. Well, I think, uh, you know, I was saying this before that we're, we're seeing, uh, again, a large deficit. We've seen cuts to uh, programs for families and children. And at the same time, uh, a tax break to the richest uh, Ontarians, the amount of $275 million. So this is a hostile takeover of who pays uh, and who doesn't pay. So, uh, we see a government today that's benefiting those who are in the top 1%, and uh, those benefits are coming from uh, people who are struggling with affordability in Ontario. Uh, w- one of the things that you're always going to be looking for in a budget like this, and I have some experience with uh, you know, going through budgets, liberal budgets, over the last 10 years and finding the Easter eggs hidden in the back, and then there's always the things that the government says... Uh, no, that's that's not in our budget here. We just can't simply afford that. What are you looking, John, uh, for in this budget in terms of the government just saying this is something we can no longer afford? Well, I think going back to your previous question, I think we're we what we're really going to be looking for is the thoughtful, because we haven't yet to see that from this government, and I think you are we are afraid we're going to see bean counter type cuts with no real thoughtfulness regarding who they're going to hurt. And one of the reasons why we're thinking that, and it brings us back to a liberal budget of old, remember when they decided to sell, the liberals decided to sell a Hydro One, and on the other hand, it's, oh, but shiny beer in big grocery stores. And with this budget, the Tories are doing the same thing that the liberals of the past did, and they're saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to have beer in corner stores, we're going to have tailgate parties, and there's going to be subways for everyone. So they're trying to focus people's 
people's attention, the the popul- yeah the public's attention away from what's actually going to be in the budget. And, and some of the things that John's mentioning here, and I'll just give you some quick details on that. That's that eighty nine thousand dollar government logo redo where they take out the old three men on a hot tub. <laughs> thing that was brought in by McGinty back in 2006. And then also you've got the license plates with a place to grow. I don't know. Does they, Mike, you want to sing along here? A place to grow? Ontario. Anybody want to help me out? No. Nobody wants to help. Uh, and then, of course, you, you've got the more substantial things. But then you also got tailgating, and that, yeah. of course, were reported in the Toronto Sun. Uh, John, you, you think this is a, a question of look at the thing over here and not what oh. we're actually doing to the province? Of course. Of course. Otherwise, uh, why why would you do that right before the budget? I, I have knocked on a lot of doors. A lot of my folks would be happy with tailgating, but I have never I have never knocked on a door and said, you know what? The priority that we need in the province is we need to legalize tailgate parties. I have never had so that as an there, issue. There are a few things like let's uh, let's talk about transit, like the expansion of subway in Ontario in any way is a good thing. So the NDP, you know, always, are, they're always there to criticize, never uh, bringing forward ideas. It's easy when you're in opposition to criticize, but it's tough when you're in government to make decisions. I think the problem with uh, the provincial government today is that, and the thing, Alan, you said, what would I like to see in this budget? I'd like to see the return to decency in Ontario. I'd like to see the return of us believing as a collective that we are stronger than just kind of, you know, every person for themselves. I, I don't know how much decency costs is the problem, and I'm just well, running out of time. And I want to play, I want to, because I want to be fair, right. uh, I want to play this for John. You are addicted to spending like the proverbial <laughs> drunken sailor. Is it true? Are, are, you, are the dippers just drunken sailors spending our money? No, actually, if, if you look at the NDP governments across the country, we have had a pretty good record of spending, being fiscally responsible. We are much more thoughtful on where money is actually spent. John Vetoff is the NDP deputy leader. Michael Cotto is a liberal MPP. And uh, great to have you guys on. Appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Appreciate the opportunity. We are looking forward to Vic Fideli's first budget as finance minister in this province. The first budget under the Ford government, and those details will come out just after 4 o'clock today. And stay with the show. If you've ever wondered what it is, what is this lockup thing? How does it work? Why are all the journalists covering Ontario politics right now in a room somewhere without their phones? Why do we do that? And I'm going to take you through exactly what has happened, because I've done this for about the last 12 years. This is the first time in in about at least 10 years, I believe, that I haven't been in the lockup, that I have not had my phone taken away and been escorted to the bathroom by the OPP, because that is actually part of what happens, and we'll talk more about that coming up. But I, I want to talk about a couple of things in this next segment. And first off is something that happened in the House yesterday with the minister of education. Of course, you, you may remember that yesterday was a uh, day of pink, I think it's called, where the, the kids, they all wear the pink stuff to be able to protest against uh, billowing. And so this was a question from a MPP, an NDP MPP from London North Centre, who asks the Minister of Education to say a couple of specific words. Say these words, Minister. Here is the exchange in the House. 
Why is this minister taking away support from LGBTQ plus students during a time when she should be offering more? And can the minister Question. say the words homophobia and transphobia? Thank you. <laughs> Members, please take their seats. Minister to reply. Actually, those those words don't exist in my vocabulary because it's about the actions that really matter. Here, here. I'm speaking of Craig. I'm, think, I'm thinking of my friend Craig. I'm thinking of my friend Frank. I'm thinking about my family members who we embrace. We don't we don't classify and we don't use terms to label. We embrace relationships. We em, we embrace healthy relationships, and that is what our curriculum is going to reflect when it's released in September next year. That is the Minister of Education for this province in Ontario's legislature yesterday saying that the words homophobia and transphobia are simply not in her vocabulary. Well, that has raised a bunch of questions, and of course the NDP has gone on the attack about this, saying this is ridiculous, you have to be able to name this, you have to be able to say these words, that it's important to say the word out loud. And of course, not everyone believes that. I think the minister here has a point, does she not? Which is, it's not the phobia, it's not the phobia that we're worried about, or what kind, it's just that the behavior is what we have to tackle. And I think a lot of people will listen to the minister and hear what she said there and nod and say, yes, I think perhaps we put too much emphasis on words, but words are powerful. Words have meaning. You may remember, remember when there was a big deal because President Obama would not say Islamic terror? Remember that? When that was a big deal? He was like, he won't say it. Well, now we have this, well, now the Minister of Education won't say these words. And so does that mean that she denies that it exists? Afterwards, and here's what happens in the House. So you have the situation, a question period. And then afterwards, the ministers come outside uh, of the chamber and that's where they face reporters. And this happened yesterday. And you're going to hear the minister now uh, talking more about this. And it'll be interesting to hear what words she does say here. And then the voice you will hear is uh, Canadian press reporter Allison Jones, who asks her, well, if you're going to say this now, why didn't you say it then? And let's be clear, there is no room for any type of phobia in our education curriculum in Ontario, especially homophobia and transphobia, and that's what I meant today. But, so you're saying them now, why, what was the hesitation in naming them in the question period? Because I immediately went to my friends and family. That's who I was thinking of. That is the minister reacting in the house, and as you can hear, she said the words and said, well, I was thinking about family. So... The question, the question really has to be, are these words something that needs to be said? And you heard the minister say them, and I, I think she probably thought long and hard just in between the point when she said that in the House and when she came out to talk to reporters and thought, this is probably not a winning proposition to be able to you know, say, well, I'm going to draw a line, a line in the sand here, and my line in the sand is I don't say the words homophobia or transphobia, and we know that those things are real. Those are real things. And this government, of course, is under a lot of scrutiny about what kind of education system they're going to put in place. What kind of sexual education program are we going to have come September? And how are we going to treat these words? And these are the sort of words that, you know, people are going to be looking at when we see that curriculum. Does it say homophobia? Does it say transphobia? 
Interesting perspective there, and something to think about. And I know there's a lot of strong opinions on each side of that issue. I want to talk about Julianne Assange, if I can, and what has happened in London, because this is absolutely fascinating. And I don't know if you have seen the video. Do we have the audio of Mr. Assange being what appears to be him being actually forcibly removed from the Ecuadorian embassy? Let's listen to that. What you're listening to here is Julian Assange being forcibly escorted out of Ecuador's embassy in London. The WikiLeaks founder arrested by British police today in the Ecuadorian embassy where he has been holed up since 2012 after the United States requested his extradition. London police confirmed that he was arrested, quote, on behalf of the United States, which has requested Assange extradition for as well as for breaching British bail conditions. The U.S. indictment accuses Assange of assisting in the release of intelligence uh, and the computer papers, the Pentagon uh, papers, of course, as you remember. Assange pay, facing a maximum penalty of five years in prison if he is convicted of that. The, here now is the Prime Minister, uh, Theresa May. And every time I see Theresa May, I think, are you still Prime Minister? I can't keep track. Are, are, you, st- are you sure you're still Prime Minister? Yes, Theresa May is Prime Minister, and here's what she had to say about Assange's arrest. Arrested for breach of bail after nearly seven years in the Ecuadorian embassy. He has also been arrested in relation to an extradition request from the United States authorities. Also turns out that um, Mr. Assange is a crappy house guest. Like this is like this is like when your brother-in-law, you know, comes over and says, like, I, I got to, you mind if I just, you know, flake on your couch for a little while? And then seven years later, you know, Buddy's still there. I mean, this is this is sort of what's happened here with Julian Assange. It's going to be very interesting. And uh, Edward Snowden uh, is tweeting this morning. And uh, Edward, of course, this is all related to uh, Edward Snowden and a lot of this information that Snowden um, put public. And Snowden tweeting out that images of Ecuador's ambassador inviting the U.K. secret police into the embassy to drag a publisher of, like it or not, award-winning journalism out of the building are going to end up in the history books. Assange's critics may cheer, but this is a dark moment for press freedom. That is a tweet from Edward Snowden today. That is a story that we're just keeping on top of, and it's continued to develop. Uh, Later on in the program, we're going to have Catherine McDonald with us. Catherine McDonald, of course, global news crime specialist, and she is following a very disturbing story, a murder that happened in Toronto's PATH system, and Catherine has some exclusive reporting on that and what has happened and, and what we understand about the investigation. i got a, a couple of minutes here for just some quick rip and read. Now, if, if you're familiar with the program, here's what, what we do is I just take some wire copy, and I just rip it right off, and, and I read it, uh, often cold. So here we go. Uh, we're starting in Montreal in our rip and read segment. You know, of course, the the playoffs are underway. We have uh, the Leafs playing tonight. Well, this year's National Hockey League playoffs features an unusually fierce battle between two longtime business rivals 
Quebecor's TVA Sports and BCE's Bell TV. TVA Sports blocked its French-language NHL feed to Bell at 7 p.m. last night, just as the playoffs got underway, to reinforce Quebecers' demand for better fees from Bell. And that is defied a warning by the federal broadcaster. Man! Two minutes for high sticking on that one. Let's go to Clifton, New Jersey. A New Jersey woman who used garden shears to destroy her neighbor's racy Easter display has been charged with criminal mischief. This display at a dental office in Clifton, New Jersey featured five mannequins dressed in lingerie, all holding Easter baskets and surrounded by Easter eggs. It had drawn mixed reviews from neighbors as well as passers-by who stopped to take photos. A television news crew was filming the display earlier this week when 37-year-old Desiree Shepstone took it down. She says she didn't want her 16-year-old son to be subjected to this disgusting display. This disgusting display of plastic humans in lingerie. The dentist who created the display says he will soon have it back up. He says he got the idea for the Playboy Bunnies themed decorations during a trip to Party City. That is, that is one heck of a dentist. Please, more Novocaine for me. A fascinating conversation straight ahead all about measles, and we've had an outbreak of measles in the Ottawa area. We've seen it in several places in this country, but the big news comes from New York City, where that city's effort to halt a measles outbreak by ordering mandatory vaccinations in one particular Brooklyn neighborhood is now facing opposition. There are lawyers for parents opposed to those vaccinations. They're promising to file lawsuits. New York City and Rockland County are both struggling to contain a measles outbreak that has mainly affected Orthodox Jewish families. Some 285 measles cases have been identified in New York since last fall. Now, that's compared to two in all of 2017. There have been 168 cases reported just in Rockland since the fall. And in this rare order, New York City is now requiring residents of the heavily Orthodox Jewish neighborhood to be vaccinated for measles. The question is, how can officials actually enforce that demand? As New York officials sound alarms this week about that measles outbreak in concentrations of Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods, leaders of those communities are beginning to push back, saying that they are being stigmatized as being both anti-vaccination and indifferent about public health, Orthodox Jews say that, contrary to public opinion, their faith does not push an anti-vaccination view. I want to listen to some reaction from New York City. These are many of the people from that Orthodox Jewish community talking about vaccinations. They were never tested fully for safety. So, you you know, people are beginning to question why. Should I subject my three-year-old to toxins when it's not going to protect him or her? No, I don't believe it's a religious thing. I think it's just the people themselves should do it on their own. For most people, measles is not dangerous. There is newborns and some people, measles is dangerous. Most people just give vitamin A and drink a lot of water, and it's 10 sick days. The old the complaints that all people have for the vaccine. And there are a lot, a lot uh, of uh, proof 
thinks that the vaccine caused a lot of harm. It's true that a lot of people have measles and measles is not a very good thing, but I think the vaccine is also not a very good thing and it's everybody's option to do what he wants. It is everyone's option to do what they want. The very basic understanding of herd immunity makes that not true because herd immunity is where you have a certain percentage of the population that is uh, guaranteed not to have something, has been vaccinated, and that means that if anyone does get it, it doesn't spread. But if you have a percentage of the population that is not vaccinated, then things like measles can spread. To talk more about this issue, I am pleased to welcome Rabbi Karabkin from the Beth Abraham Yosef of Toronto congregation known as Beit from Thornhill. Rabbi, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me on. Let us begin with the contention that Orthodox Jews, by and large, are anti-vax. Is there truth to that? No, by and large. Orthodox Jews are as concerned about the health of their children as anyone else. It's really a vocal fringe element within the Orthodox community that have sort of bought into the conspiracy theory about vaccination that have really created this problem for us. There has been reporting in the New York Times about uh, literature um, in Hebrew that is being sort of passed around underground between these Orthodox communities that uh, reinforces this belief that vaccinations are not good, not good for your kids. Have you ever seen anything like that in, in the Toronto area? I haven't seen anything like that in Toronto. And the truth is, is that about 20 years ago, there was a debunked study by Dr. Andrew Wakefield, who since had his license revoked for falsifying his study that said that measles in some way is linked to autism. Yeah. And that study has been debunked multiple times. But yet it continues to exist and it continues to be spread around. Correct. And unfortunately, sometimes when you live in an insulated community, there's no way to properly filter the information that's coming in. So if a friend tells you, oh, I've received this information and it's accurate, there's no way if you're not part of the larger society to really necessarily gauge the weight of that information. So that's how sometimes among fringe elements, people who are mistrusting of government and and so forth may have bought into that anti-vax message. But by and large, it's not part of the mainstream. Rabbi, for those of us who perhaps are, are not so familiar with Judaism and, and how ultra-Orthodox works and, and the beliefs and the tenets, is there a belief within ultra-Orthodox to be insular and to cut themselves off from things like mass media, social media, that sort of thing? Well, in certain communities in, in, among the Orthodox, there is such a tendency. They either heavily filter what they get on the Internet or they don't use Internet at all. And that's sometimes the reason why this information hits them. But the truth is, even if a person has no filters on their social media, there's so much half-truth and mistruth that you can read on Facebook, you know, depending upon uh, what your political leanings are, that, you know, it's not a question of exposure. It's a question of exposure to what kind of information. So even though these people may have Facebook or social media, they may be getting from their friends all of these kinds of hysteria-invoking pieces about how, you know, there's toxins in the vaccine and how it promotes, uh, you know, it creates autism within a certain percentage of children. 
And of course, it's very, very harmful to the rest of the community. And how do you get that message out to a fringe element, as you would describe it, an insular element? As a rabbi, how do you get that information out? Right. That's an important question, because about, I'd say about five years ago, um, there were a number of rabbis who really didn't want to take a position because they felt that there was validity to either side, both the pro-vax and the anti-vax, and, and they didn't want to be controversial. So many rabbis just stood back and told people they can do whatever they want. That's changed now with the outbreaks. Major rabbinic organizations have come out, including the rabbis in Toronto, that are part of the Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox community, and have made it very, very clear unequivocally that it is the duty of every parent to have their child vaccinated. And furthermore, many of the schools, I think most of the schools in the GTA, um, have made it policy that if your child is not vaccinated, they will not be allowed into the school. One of the disturbing byproducts of what's happened in New York City is we have reporting that this has now prompted a anti-Semitic backlash. There are reports of, you know, people saying, you know, in stores to their kids, don't go anywhere near that, you know, Orthodox Jewish man because he may have a disease. I I guess I, I wonder about what your reaction to that is. And obviously it's not warranted in the larger sense, but do you understand where that comes from? Well, it's a horrible uh, stereotype and it harkens back to the medieval dark ages when people thought that bubonic plague was spread by Jews. Right. Um, And it's very unfortunate. It's one of those byproducts of, of really this conspiracy theory being promulgated within the community, and which is only makes it even more urgent for anyone who is in a position of leadership within the Orthodox community to prevail upon his congregation or her congregation to make sure that the children are vaccinated. Rabbi Daniel Korobkin has been on the program. This has been a fascinating and illuminating conversation. Rabbi, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I want to get a quick update on a story that is developing right now. This is a stabbing death of a 51-year-old woman. Ray Cara Carrington was killed last night in the underground path system. Emergency services were called to the concourse below Bay and King just around 7.15 after reports of a stabbing. Police say the victim was treated by paramedics but died. Uh, our crime specialist, Catherine McDonald, joins me on the line. Catherine, what do we know about the search for a suspect here? Well, um, my police sources, uh, first of all, tell me that Ray Carrington was a mother of eight children. Uh, she worked here at Fast Fresh Food. I'm, I'm actually right outside of the crime scene right now, which is uh, all taped, taped off with, um, they've actually put up sort of uh, siding around the restaurant so you can't see in, but behind the siding, are forensic investigators in in these jumpsuits, uh, and they're take, make, taking evidence. You know, this this is such a busy spot. It's lunchtime. Hundreds of people are walking by, and here we have a, a crime scene that's being processed. And and people are very affected by this because many people actually would go to this restaurant for lunch and knew her to see her. knew knew uh, We did speak to a woman. I did speak to a woman who said she called her a ray of sunshine because she was always uh, such a lovely woman. Um, and so, as far as the search for the suspect is concerned. Uh, police uh, have a description of the man they're looking for. Um, I've heard from police sources that they are looking to speak to family members connected to Mrs. Carrington or Ms. Carrington. Um, and uh, right now, there's no update from police on whether or not they've been able to uh, locate 
anyone uh, with family ties to her. Uh, they are saying this was a targeted attack, uh, which uh, raises the question, was this a domestic? That's still unconfirmed right now. Yeah, the police saying that they believe the attack was targeted, but they, if I understand correctly, have not said what uh, relationship there was between the two. The male suspect uh, that Catherine's talking about, described by police as being between 20 to 30 years of age, five foot eight, five foot nine, average stocky build, described as having dark hair, thin mustache, last seen wearing a dark sweatshirt with a hood, a white shirt, dark pants, and dark shoes. What are we going to see at uh, 5.30 on your, uh, your your story tonight, Catherine? Well, we are trying to find more out about the victim. Uh, we're speaking to people who knew her, to see her, some who actually knew her to say hello. Uh, you know, and I should mention, this food court area is very close to where Rosemary Jr. was stabbed in December 2015. There are security cameras everywhere. Police definitely know who they're looking for here. They may not have released his name, uh, but I believe they do know exactly who they're looking for. And, and maybe the reason they're not putting out his name yet is because they think they can pick him up uh, without the help from the media. But certainly, if, if that doesn't happen, I think we could see a a picture of a suspect uh, come out in the next couple of hours. By 5.30, we may well be trying to help the police uh, make an arrest in this case. But in the meantime, uh, we're going to be digging into uh, Ray Carrington's past, who she was, um, you know, what kind of woman, what kind of mother she was, and, and why possibly someone would want her dead. Such a sad story. It is. Catherine McDonald is Global News Crime Specialist, the award-winning Catherine McDonald. You can see her story on this developing news story tonight, beginning at 5.30 on Global News. Catherine, always great having you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's pivot uh, away to what else is happening today and what's going to take up all of the oxygen in the room, and that is namely what's happening just outside of Queen's Park. Budget cuts. Well, there may be some budget cuts, of course, today is the provincial budget. And I want to take you through a little sort of a background and an explainer, give you a sense of what's actually happening uh, at Queen's Park. And it's just to the east of Queen's Park that we're talking about. And I want to play for you just a little something that that I did a couple of years back when I was in the lockup. I've been doing this lockup thing for about 10 years now. This is where they take the reporters and they, they take away all of their communication devices, and this is a little sort of thing, what, what you experience when you're on your way in. I'm about to enter the budget lockup. First of all, I'm going to give away your phone, and then once you go into this room, you're basically locked in there for the rest of the day until the finance minister stands at 4 p.m. in the House, and then we all come rushing out to report the news. And that is exactly what happens. And sort of take you through why we do this. The idea here is that there may be sensitive information, sensitive financial information within the budget that if it is not learned all at the same time, if special interests were to be able to get a hold of that information, they may be able to, I don't know, sell stock, do something. Have They have information in advance of the rest of the market, and that is why we have this budget secrecy. And the other reason that we allow journalists to look at this for so many hours without communicating to the outside world is it's an incredibly detailed document. And that you just simply can't just flop it down on the, on the desk and say, there it is, because it, it just would not be possible as a journalist to be able to accurately reflect what was in the thing. And then the information would sort of dribble out. This way, what we have is that at about 4.15 today, it's just, boom, it's all going to come out at the same time. What's going to happen in just about the next hour? So the, the reporters, they can go in at any time. 
It's just, it, it opened at 8 o'clock this morning. Once you're in, you can't come out. It's like the Hotel California. You check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Once you're in there, you read the thing all the way over. you got to really dig through it because you're looking for Easter eggs here. You're looking for that hidden thing. The government will have press releases right there that will say, well, this is we want you to look at this, and we're doing this thing, and it's fabulous, and this thing's fabulous. But then you got to look in the back. Like, what's, uh, the thing I always look for is you look for the tables, all the numbers, and where's the taxation changes? And last time around... Uh, I think I might have been the first one to discover that the liberals were going to change taxation because it was right in the back. And the, one of the ways that you find out what's in the thing, it's just a giant document, it's almost impossible to go through with a fine-tooth comb, is that just about uh, at about one thirty, the finance minister will talk to reporters in the room, and then he'll take questions, and it kind of goes around the room, sometimes about 45 minutes, different reporters asking questions, and some reporter will say, well, listen, why is it that you're going to raise the tax on cheese? And then you think to yourself, oh, I didn't see that, where is that, quickly, and you just, you thump through, oh, I don't know, where's the cheese thing, I don't know, I can't believe I missed it. And then, so you're like, oh, well, I got it, I got it, I got it. So that's what's happening now. And then sort of after the finance minister's up, then the uh, the opposition leader, Andrew Horvath, will be in the opposition or in the lockup. She'll answer questions. And like I say, when the minister stands up, then all of that information floods out. I hope you have learned a few things. I've learned a couple of things. I've learned where the on and off button is for the microphone. I learn that every day. Uh, I've learned that you don't have to shave when you come in to do radio. Dusty is doing our uh, technical work on the board today. He hasn't shaved in years. That's what you get to do when you're in radio. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back again tomorrow with a big budget roundup. We'll have the finance minister. We'll have Andrea Horvath. There'll be cheese. It'll No, there won't be cheese. I'm back again tomorrow at noon. Uh, no, that's, that's not in our budget here. Yeah.